Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. My name is Tyler, and I'm here today with Pratik and Nick. It's great to be with you guys. Happy to have another conversation this weekend. Today, we're actually going to be kicking it off with the COVID relief bill that actually just got passed this past week. So, Pratik, give us some details there. Okay, so um, with this bill, Biden signed it into law on Thursday. So the $1.9 trillion stimulus plan is now in action, and Eventually, people will start getting their $1,400 checks. And the second news update that we have is Cuomo, um, in terms of Cuomo's impeachment, New York Senators Schumer Schumer and Gillibrand want him out as well. So Cuomo is having a rough stretch right now. I don't know if he'll be able to make it. And with the stimulus bill, it's going to potentially lead to bond yields rising, which are continuing to happen. So with the Fed Reserve giving their meeting on Wednesday, we'll know how inflation is and if there has been a kick in inflation. The one thing I want to say about the bill is it passed, I think, like 210 to 220 uh, with no Republicans flipping. And the Republicans said that we actually don't need too much stimulus at this point because the economy is doing fine. That was one of their arguments. And I think that's a really, really poor argument, given that millions of Americans left the workforce haven't been able to work. And even though the market continued to rose, rise, we have less people generally in the workforce. So we're creating that divide of the middle class. So I don't think you can specifically say because the market had gone up, we no longer need an, a form of relief. Now, did was 1.9 trillion the magic number? I don't know about that, but 1. it's hard for me trillion. to- 1.4 It's hard for me to say that we didn't need some form of relief, especially since it's been pushed off for so long. And even the Republicans pushed for it before Trump got elected. Uh, I mean, my, my thing here is that the problem with the big $1.2 trillion stimulus bill, not 1.4, I don't know what I was thinking, um, Bill, is that it has a lot of stuff that had nothing to do with the original intention of the bill, which was giving you know money to people. And I don't get this. I get like, I don't understand where the Republicans come from. I don't understand where the Democrats come from on this. Out of a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, the, the amount of money that people are getting is only $1,400. And I feel like maybe I'm just like on my own party line somewhere, stuck somewhere. But like, I feel like people need to be getting more of this money because I feel like people, if you give them the money, they're going to make the best decisions with their money. And we're spending all this money on different things, like helping out local governments that weren't able to have have like stable budgets or helping out all these schools that were shut down over this period of time. And that's all great and all. But the main purpose should have been to give people money. And I feel like giving $1,400 is not that much of the $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. And that's only my issue. I don't understand where the Republicans come from. I don't care what the Democrats are planning to do. I just feel people should have got more money because that was the original intention of the bill. Yeah, and I have no problem with that. But I did see they gave like $30 billion to restaurants and they're giving money to small businesses. So I, they are helping. But you're right. Maybe we should be giving more to the American citizens because they're the ones most affected and they've been getting the least benefit out of all of this. What do you think about the idea of it being means tested? Because I know Republicans pushed for that a lot to say, hey, there's some people where if you had continuous employment and you're making 65 k a year, why should you be receiving a stimulus check? Certainly things times have been tough for everyone. But if you've had continuous employment, make good income, why do you deserve to get 1400 bucks when there's other people who are, you know, maybe a little bit more deserving of that money? Why should it be equally distributed regardless of your financial state? So you don't so like I, the 75K number? No, I'm just curious what your thoughts okay. are, Pratik, since you I, are a Republican. Yeah, 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 that yeah. was one of the big talking I, points. I agree. Um, I think that's all stupid. I think that 
I believe in the UBI system. I think that people should be getting money. I don't think you should discriminate based on people's income because how those people use that money is not going to be the same as how everybody else uses that money. That money can mean something of different value to every individual person. And I don't feel like, I feel like that's where the Republicans start playing like Democrats and this all dumb where you're trying to determine who's good enough for this and who's not good enough for this based on their income levels and based on, you know, all these other factors that are all like, you know, subjective and they don't really actually mean anything. Like if somebody has more money and somebody has less money, doesn't mean that the person that has more money and the person that has less money is going to use that money in the same way. So I Yeah, but but the level of importance differs. If I need to pay for rent and food, that's one thing. But if I have make a million dollars a year and with fifteen hundred dollars, I'm just gonna gamble it the next day because it's free money. But that, those are that, different values values. I feel that it doesn't matter. If you have a million dollars and I have like ten million dollars, we should all be able to get the same amount of money. We're both paying taxes. You may be paying less taxes than I am, but in the end of the day, we're still providing a chunk of our money in taxes. And the government is not just your your government is not just my government based on how much money we're paying in taxes and how much income we have sure like the value of it will differ for each person and there will be the people that are below the income bracket that are not making that much money are going to need that money much more but as i said i believe in the universal basic income system for that one reason is that all right we're providing welfare to all these people based on how much money they're able to make and then we create all these levels and different distinctions that make it so that people are incentivized to not make as much money or be able to report as much money that they're making in terms of their accounting system to be able to receive an additional fund. And I would rather everyone, everybody just makes that same amount of money and everyone's going to use it differently. And sure, what you're saying mean, makes a lot of sense, but in the larger scheme of things, like that's the government playing favorites. The same way they play favorites on everything else. And, and, and I totally I agree, but I think this is a special case. I think if it were universal basic income over a long period of time, maybe maybe you're, you're right in that case. But I don't think this is that case. I think this is such a special time where certain people need it and other people don't need I, it. Even I, though I they've been affected, we've all been affected, but certain people are on, on a different brink. I, I fundamentally, need to pay for food. It's different. you know. I fundamentally disagree with that argument okay. just because... I feel that everyone has been impacted in some way or another. And just because someone has more money does not mean that the government has a right to discriminate against them over somebody that has less money on something like We this. do that with because all our welfare programs. I, do, I agree. But you have a $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. Out of that, you're only giving $1,400. That's like not even like 90% of that money. Sure. 90% of that money is going to a bunch of random other initiatives that have no impact on majority of the people's lives, right? So yeah. now you like you want to go into that much detail about it sure i would rather you give money to businesses too but if you gave money to the people and you gave them let's say i don't know ten thousand dollars which you could probably afford if you're giving that much money to people because you're already paying fourteen hundred dollars for, for a couple and you have a 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus plan sure inflation is going to go through the roof but it's going to go through the roof regardless because you're yeah. spending a bunch of money on things that don't really matter Pratik, I, I think that's well said, but I want to hand it off to Nick and I want to get his Sorry. response to that. No, you're fine. <laughs> got heated. 
No, I think the critique, what you're saying, it reminds me a lot of what Milton Friedman used to say in the 60s and 70s, which is abolish all welfare programs, just come out with one flat rate that you give to everyone regardless, and let the marketplace decide. Let individuals use the money how they see fit. We shouldn't have means-tested systems. And in fact, it could be maybe even efficient because you don't have to spend more money on administering and uh, testing to make sure that everyone fits their particular peg that they're being um, subsidized at. Um, I think within the context of uh, COVID and this bill that was passed, frankly, I'm surprised and a little a little excited even that Pratik is so on board with it. Um, granted, he's not on board with how it played out, but just the idea of giving Americans money right now, um, because I mean, the, even though, you know, that at least for me, for, in my humble opinion, I feel like the Republican side, a lot of it is you know, a lot of deficit hawks. Oh God, we're spending so much, we're getting into so much debt. It's uncontrollable. We've got to do something now. And that's somewhat the libertarian Isn't that position. true? They keep spending. There are no libertarians in the Republican party anymore. I was going to say Crazy. Trump kind of blew that out of yeah. proportion. And I feel like it doesn't align with some of the more traditional conservative values, which is, you know, rein in fiscal spending, which I know they parrot every election cycle, but I feel like the Trump administration didn't do it. And now for McConnell to come in and say, oh, God, now that the Democrats are in charge, it's fiscal runaway. They're blowing through all of our money. We're going to be a debtor nation till the end of our days. This is terrible. And it's like, you've been doing that the last four years. What changed except, you know, the uh, majority is shifting from R to D. Really but nothing. also the Democrats wouldn't vote for it until it switched to D. That's so it's fair. Like a huge hey, that's fair. That's fair. Game, you know? I'll concede that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I concede. Okay, right, I cool. just have my opinions on that. And I'm my main focus is just like, I mean, that is a fiscally conservative way of looking at it too. Because we spend so much money on, you know, all these welfare programs where a lot of these, the, a lot of these welfare programs like earned income tax credit or like Medicaid haven't really panned out the way that they should have panned out. And there are sure there's some benefits that have come from all these welfare programs as well. But the main issue is that if you are to just give the people money, then they're going to be able to use that money to the best of their ability that's going to benefit them the most. And it's going to vary between each individual so, person. I'm not a Democrat in this one perspective that I feel that people are going to make the best decisions for themselves. A lot of people that are Republicans and a lot of people that are Democrats on the social side of both aisles believe that people are going to make stupid decisions if, unless you tell them what to do or tinker what they're trying to do. And I feel like that's a bunch of baloney. Like we have, you give people money, they're going to use that money to the best of their ability. That's going to benefit them the most. There's going to be a few outliers here and there. There's going to be some drug addicts. There's going to be some drunkards that are going to spend a bunch of money on buying their own stuff. But like for the 99% of everybody else, they're going to do what's right for themselves. And, and Nick, I would, any, any I would agree. I would fully agree with that. I don't think the government should act as some sort of parent lording over all these you know dumb children that are americans no i think most people are smart most people can think for themselves and decides what's best for them and their families so i'm very much on board with that idea and think it should be more in the hands of the people than um these highly structured programs and restrictions based on what you can and can't do with it yeah and and we're, we might actually circle back to this with the immigration and the fact that we might legalize some illegal immigrants and they'd be into our system and paying for social security and that, that whole thing but with that, let's dive into our next topic. We're going to be talking a little bit about Lara Trump uh, may run for the Senate in North Carolina to replace the outgoing Senator Richard Burr. So this is actually in the backyard of Pratik over here. So I'm going to hand it off to yeah. you to start. So I, I don't really know how to pronounce her name. I think it's Lara, 
But Laura without Trump a you. Is the, <laughs> yeah, she's the president's daughter-in-law, the wife of Eric Trump, and she's eyeing to um, take the seat of Senator Richard Burr, who is going to vacate in 2022. And Laura Trump, um, if she does run in 2022 will be directly competing with Mark Walker so far, who is one of our representatives from our Greensboro area and may also run against Dan Forrest, um, who, if he doesn't run for governor, may run for Senate, which those are the two other options and Mark Meadows potentially. But Mark Meadows and Lara Trump would be on the same, same like train because Mark Meadows is a devout Trump supporter and was the former chief of staff. So uh, those are the that's the storyline right now. There's not much to well, it. So, so I think a good topic of conversation would be here would be political dynasties and like our thoughts on having these political dynasties, people basically tagging on to the name of one successful person and writing that up, whether it be the Kennedys, the Bushes, now the Trumps, the Clintons. Uh, what are your guys thoughts on political dynasties? Do you, would you like to see the Trump name back in politics or do you think it's kind of toxic? I think it's a little bit toxic, but I would say that for every political dynasty. I mean, I was rooting for Jeb Bush in 20, 2016 as you a meme. No, hold on. As <laughs> a meme. I didn't actually I didn't actually support Jeb Bush, by the way. That was a joke. But I mean, seriously, it's I think it leaves a sour taste in your mouth when you see names like even even the Kennedys, who everyone loves, right? They can do no wrong, which, of, of course, there were plenty of wrongs that they did. But in any case, I think the idea of political dynasties in this country, I think that's what we were somewhat founded in opposition of. And I, to me, I'm not a huge fan of having the same families and generations of people, you know, just continuing down the line for hundreds of years to say, you know, this is the ruling class in America. I don't think that's how it should happen. Now, maybe like four or five generations later, someone comes in. Sure, no big deal, whatever. Like if Abraham Lincoln's great, 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 whatever comes in and runs for office, I'm not going to be that mad. But if um, the if the Lincoln family had run successively every single year after Abraham Lincoln was in office, I would view that completely differently. I think there should be opportunities for different families and different people across the country. Uh, to get involved in politics and represent uh, their their district in their area. Yeah, it's very anti the American, the American way. Like you said, we were founded on the idea of moving away from that. So Pratik, what do you think about this? I don't absolutely agree with Nick. I just feel like anybody should be able to run whoever they are. Well, so I don't think Nick said he shouldn't be able to run it. He just thinks it's not yeah, 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 necessarily productive for us to be doing that I, I over and over again. Yeah, they I can still run Pratik. I just yeah, don't yeah, want I them know, to. I know. I'm just saying I don't really... <laughs> care that much if like i do i do believe that there are a lot of dynasty problems or there are kennedys the bushes um and they've had a lot more influence over politics over the time and let's say trump does now the trump family but i feel like overall it doesn't really matter to me in the grand scheme of things like people are going to still vote for whoever they think is the best candidate and i feel like american voters are much more intelligent to just vote people based on their last name instead they'll actually vote for people based on merit they vote for a letter that, instead yeah, good point <laughs> i feel that in my issue it's like see like even with bushes like jeb bush and george w bush like people have their opinions about them but they were talented people in their own scale of things and they won their seats as governors because of their own merit it also matters that they were the president son of the president but I mean, in the long term, like people are still going to vote whoever they think is the best candidate. And 
those people did win throughout their primaries, but there were probably other potential candidates that were really strong. And I feel like in North Carolina, the same case will be like Mark Walker. I don't really like Mark Walker. He has some issues. Like I thought he was kind of racist, but that's just my opinion. But he's from our Greensboro district and he replaced Howard Coble, who'd been here for like 50 years. He died. He like died like a year after he resigned from his office, but he was here for a long time as a representative. And then he replaced him. And then Mark Meadows, obviously, was the chief of staff for Donald Trump. So if he runs, Dan Forrest, who is the lieutenant governor, if he runs for Senate, and if Mark Walker runs for Senate, who was one of the highest ranking Republican members in the House, like if they run and Laura Trump runs and Laura Trump wins, Laura Trump wins on merit. It just doesn't just win because like, oh, she's Trump, Trump's her last name. She gets like 40% or 50% of those votes probably, but the other remaining 50% or whoever is the best out of those four 50 percent's a lot my dude i know but i'm saying of her own specific votes so like it's that it's like if she had 100 votes 50 of them comes from her being her last name being trump the rest of the 50 can come from you know her merit for me i just think there's a human tendency to want to have strong leaders and essentially the same leaders over time i think we it's like kind of ingrained in us to have that that's why we've had monarchies and dictators and what have you for all of history. And I think it's novel that we don't. So I think we should try to avoid that tendency at all costs. But I think it's everyone's right to vote for who they want to vote. And thus far, I don't think it's been too much of a problem. So I guess we'll see what happens. But with that, I think that's actually a pretty good transition to our next topic. Uh, this one's a little more on the tabloidy side, but we're actually going to be talking about the, uh, the royal family. Uh, Prince William called the royal family not a racist family after Meghan and Harry the Meghan and Harry interview with uh, Oprah, I believe. So this is all over the news. Basically, Meghan Markle, who well, no, was a celebrity, she was the star actress of the show Suits. I even have a poster of the, of the Suits show on my, on my wall in my bedroom. I was a big nice. fan of that show. But uh, Meghan Markle um, became like, she got married to Prince Henry and she was pregnant and she had a kid and her kid's name is Archie and Archie was a little bit darker skin tone than majority of the babies that they've had in the royal family Oof. because everybody's been white in that family and have that I guess so there was some royal family member that expressed concern over how dark the skin color of Archie is and this became televised because Prince uh, because Megan and Prince Henry went on Oprah Winfrey's show and we're talking about this. And then some reporter came to talk to Prince William, who is uh, next in line for the throne after, got his name, Prince Charles. Um, and he's the oldest son. And he basically got asked, is the royal family a racist family, sir? And the Duke of Cambridge, who is Prince William, said, we're very much not a racist family. And then he went on Oprah Winfrey's, whenever uh, Prince Harry was talking in Oprah Winfrey's show, they hadn't met in a while, him and Prince William. But yeah, it's not really news news, but like, it's just weird how like the royal family has been in the news because they have an African-American person in their family now and they've only had white people in their family. And she's only she's half white, half black. But like, I don't know if know, it's racist one, one to want to. I don't know if it's racist to want a pure bloodline, but it's certainly not not racist. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know, know how, how to conceptualize that. that because it's like, oh, it's okay to be whatever you want to be, just not in our family, not in the most powerful family in England. We can't have that representing us. So it kind of gives off 
wrong message, if you will. So, dude, can you believe how rough they have to be having it right now? First of all, Kate comes in and they're like, "Oh, Kate, a commoner, disgusting, letting her in." <laughs> and then, you, and then, and now you have this, and it's like, man, what, what are the royals? It's like there's no aristocracy anymore. There's no whatever. It's like, where's the oh, inbreeding you, at the top? People, please, dude, exactly. They they should be more like the corgis. No, but seriously, it. Frankly, I don't really care. The fact that Oprah covered it, I mean, that's interesting. Shout out to Oprah. Um, but on the other hand, seriously, dude, who cares? Why is this all over the news? I mean, I get it. I get it in terms of the race, race relation stuff. I get it. Some people are very obsessed with the royal family. And then you add the Oprah factor, a huge exponent, you know, blowing it out of proportion. But dude, who, who the hell cares? Seriously. Yeah, I, I think people... Crown. People uh, fetishize the idea of royalty because it's something we had forever and it's kind of been going away. So the idea that you could be a prince or a queen or a princess, you have all the power without doing any of the work to get there. I think people the, people see that idea and they're just so mesmerized by it that it's the same thing as to me as celebrity worship. Celebrity do, you think worship that has, do you think that has any applicability to some of the political dynasties? that we were just talking about like I do. the Bushes, That's why Kennedys, I thought it was an interesting or even transition. Obama's, even Obama's children, where it's like, they the grow tendency. up and, you know, granted they, in a way, dude, there are equivalent of American royalty there. Yeah. And no, that's absolutely true. But the fact that it's not ingrained in our system is invaluable. I feel like the reason why a lot of this stuff is being more talked about now is because a lot of these TV shows that have been coming on that have won a lot of Academy awards and stuff like, uh, and Glo golden globes, like the crown, because Bridgerton the crown has been one of the top shows right now on Netflix. And it's like all about the Royal family. And then you've also had other shows like house of cards. And like, you had that show on uh, Madam secretary that have been about, you know, like politicians that have, you know, risen to power and the storylines behind it. And like those kind of shows have what got, has gotten a lot of people really interested. In I think it's the stuff. reverse. I think people were interested and it reflected in the shows. Our next topic today is, Another very, this is to me is a very interesting topic because I was very surprised when I read it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the Kentucky Senate votes to criminalize insulting police in a way that could cause violent responses. So let me let me read into the story. So um, critics are flipping off a Kentucky bill that would make it a crime to insult or taunt a police officer. The language in the bill makes my stomach churn, said D Senator David Yates, the Louisville Democrat. The ACLU of Kentucky called the proposal a dangerous government overreach, limiting protected free speech and protests. The Louisville Carrier Journal reported <clears throat> the bill was sponsored by State Senator David Car Carroll, a retired cop who would make it a Class B misdemeanor punishable with a $250 fine and up to 90 days in prison if someone accosts, insults, taunts or challenges a law enforcement officer with offen offensive or der derisive words or by gestures or other physical contact that would have a direct tendency to provoke a violent response from the perspective of a reasonable and prudent person. So, yeah. Dude, what does that mean? What I feel like someone's <laughs> going to scratch their back accidentally, you know, flip someone off and then they're going to get slammed to the ground and arrested. Like I offensive gestures, dude, what? It's like returning into China. <laughs> <laughs> you can flip off a cop <laughs> no it, it's really just sickening um you you like i said you don't come back from things like these like when we had the yeah. patriot act we didn't get back those rights we thought we were temporarily giving up this is and i know people go the slippery slopes are fallacy like a, a logical fallacy but i mean in this case to me that's what would happen if this becomes widespread our whole our whole law system falls apart 
the fact that police officers already have more rights and laws than the average citizen is terrible, but we have to accept that to a degree to stop all the crime we have. Um, but to go overboard and give them more rights than needed is just going to cause chaos, more divisiveness. We're going to see more, more riots, protests, and violence ultimately. So I, I don't absolutely know if the bill has passed, but basically it's passed through a committee Thursday in a party line vote, three, seven to three vote with only Republicans supporting it. And the Kentucky's governor is a Democrat. So more than likely it will be rejected and won't be signed into law. I'm not absolutely sure, but that's from the details that I have right now. The fact that it even got proposed, though, is really the scary yeah, part to me. I would assume it wouldn't get passed. If it got passed, I would be freaking out a little bit because that is incredibly scary. It's just a major breach of free speech rights. Like, I feel like people should have the right to say whatever they want to say to anybody. And I mean, if they say something insulting enough, then they will face the repercussions of it. But that's you're violating the First Amendment right of people by preventing them from saying anything to cops like. Yeah. I mean, Barring yeah. violating someone else's rights, you should be able to express yourself. Exactly. Right? With that, we'll move on to our next topic, the HR1 bill, for the For the People Act. It's a really controversial bill, and Pratik, you're, you're going to kick it off. Yeah, so um, HR1 would be the first um, House resolution that was in the 117th Congress, and the bill is like a major package thrown into one bill. So it has a lot of different aspects. So the bill addresses voter access, election integrity and security, campaign finance, and ethics for the three branches of government. So with the voter access, the bill would expand voter registration, automatic and same-day registration, voting access, aka vote by mail and early voting. It will also limit removing voters from voter rolls. The bill requires states to establish independent redistricting commissions to carry out congressional redistricting. Additionally, the bill sets forth provisions related to election security, including sharing intelligence information with state election officials, supporting states in securing their election systems, developing a national strategy to protect U.S. democratic institutions, establishing the legislative branch, the National Commission to Protect United States Democratic Institutions, and other provisions to improve the cybersecurity of election systems. This also goes on to campaign finance, where it's expanding the prohibition on campaign spending by foreign nationals, requiring additional disclosure of campaign-related fundraising and spending, and requiring additional disclaimers regarding certain political advertising and establishing an alternative campaign funding system. And it increases ethics that would be involved in the three branches of government, such as requiring a code of conduct of Supreme Court justices and prohibiting members of the House from serving on the board of a for-profit entity and establishing additional conflict of interest and ethics provisions for federal employees in the White House. And lastly, the bill requires the president, the vice president, and certain candidates for these offices to disclose 10 years of tax returns so, yeah. so let's break it up like a little bit bills in one bill yeah so let's break it up a little bit you want to start it off with gerrymandering maybe yeah so my so gerrymandering they said the bill requires states to establish independent redistricting commissions to carry out congressional redistricting so gerrymandering has always been partisan this is a fact and is usually done by state state by state basis. So the federal government can just create guidelines. The states are still going to be able to go about doing what they're going to do. Generally, historically, since 1789, we have followed partisan gerrymandering in the United States. And usually whenever one party has complete authority over um, a state and when, it, when they have to redistrict every 10 years, they will create lines that will benefit their own party to win. 
Republicans have created lines in the past to make sure that they're putting their voter base in particular lines to make sure that they're winning over Democrat um, you know, constituents, which has been called racist to some extent because a majority of the Democratic populations in some of these states are African-American. I think it's just more self-interest than racist, and, but either way. Yeah, same exactly. I mean, I'm just saying that's how it yeah, yeah. gets taught to us. And Democrats, on the other hand, have done the same thing with Republicans where some they, they've created lines that have made sure that those states can continue to be that party controlled. So some states like California and Texas have always voted the same way, which is why California will always be Democrat and Texas will always be Republican based on how redistricting lines vote work. I know California, you're getting some parts that are becoming more Republican and some parts of Texas are becoming more Democrat. But overall, because the parties in power have so much control over redistricting, that's never going to change. And this is was one of those things that federal government tries to show that they're going to create some kind of change. But in reality, they can't really do much because it's all up to the states. Yeah, this is one of the fundamental flaws with our system, unfortunately. And I thought for a long time about what you could possibly do about it. I have personally no idea. Uh, Nick, do you have any thoughts on gerrymandering? Well, so for gerrymandering, I'm Pratik, the way you framed it, you said Basically, if you're in the party in charge of your district, you will continue gerrymandering it so that you will always, sorry, of your state, you will always gerrymander it so that you stay in power. Um, So why do you think that even, so this is a national bill that would apply even in places like Texas where the Democrats are not doing too hot. Why do you think um, they push through this gerrymandering amendment when it applies countrywide, even to places, you know, it applies equally to places where they're strong and where they're weak? I think. The reason why they do this kind of stuff is they try to try to create their agendas on what they plan to do over that time period. But what always ends up happening, what I'm saying is like when Republicans are there, they want states that are Democrat to particularly redistrict a little bit, too, because then they might have some majorities in some places like New York and California that don't really seem to exist. While on the other hand, when Democrats are in power, they want some states like North Carolina or Florida or Georgia that traditionally vote a certain way to not be voting in that certain way by redrawing their lines to be more equatable to the entire population. And it's all subjective. That's the whole issue with this is there's not a right answer. Like, yeah, you draw a line in a certain way because there's just random lines on a page. It's not like you're directly drawing them lines to be perfectly accurate. That they, Even if you had an independent commission in place, those independent commissions are usually bought out by some group and are usually influenced by a particular party based on whoever's in power. And those people that are representatives and senators of those states are depend- you're creating those people that are in the independent commissions. So it's one of those things that even if, like you can argue, oh, yeah, we need to make sure that all these lines are drawn properly and they're, you know, redistricted in a proper way. It's one of those things that even if you want to do something, it has never happened in the history of the United States since 1789 that redistricting laws have been in place that have been equatable. Just one of those things. All right. So, Pratik, moving on, what are your thoughts on campaign finance? So, I, with the campaign finance stuff, it's been one of those things that, all of these states have a lot more control over how they can handle and control campaign finance laws than the federal government. And overall, the main issue has been that because there's a lot of incumbents that get elected, they have a lot of underhanded funding that gets provided to them. There's a lot of corruption that takes place between all these different officials that are elected and are reelected into their positions. And a lot of that stuff doesn't really get reported. And there's a lot of underhanded reporting when it comes to campaign finance because 
it's one of those things that if you knew that somebody else is engaging in corrupt activities, but you yourself are conducting or you're engaging in corrupt activities, you're not going to tell the, sell somebody else that, oh, look at that guy. He's engaging in these corrupt activities because then they end up looking at you too. So it's one of those things that like campaign finance has always been a problem. And there's never a right answer to any of this stuff because a lot of this stuff is underreported. So we don't really know all the details. But I, I disagree. I think there's a better answer. I think there is a better answer than what we've had now. I think the idea of wearing your sponsorships on your sleeve, which is what I'm hoping part of this bill would do. If we really have to report more of what we're what the money we're receiving for campaign finance, I'd be all for that. But right now there's too many other ways, like you were saying, like through PACs to get funding where people don't have to report. Does this bill actually fix that? I know it attempts to fix that. Does it fix that? What are your thoughts, Nick? So for campaign finance, oh God, dude, it's it's so tricky. I think this bill, while it says, you know, looking at it face value, I'm like, oh, this seems like a reasonable thing to do where they're saying any any contribution, PAC, super PAC, wh- however, whatever vehicle you are using to contribute the money, if it is over $5,000, which we deem to be you know a big amount of money, then you need to report it within 48 hours in this in this special system, right? That to me, it's like, okay, that's fair. But what's to stop someone, like basically from my perspective, as someone who's not very familiar with this, what's to stop you from reporting just under that, making a bunch of smaller contributions and sort of trying to skirt around how you end up reporting it or um, ultimately, dude, I think no matter how much it ends up being reported, people just don't look at it. People put out all these reports every single year on lobbying efforts, funding of different organizations, where the money's coming from, who it's flowing to, what senator took what amount of money for what special interest group. Um, And all that information is already public. People don't look at it on an active basis. It's really only used during campaign season to say, oh my God, look at this person. They took like a thousand bucks from this, this group. How terrible. And dude, honestly, Frankly, I just don't think many people care. I think it's good that we're getting that reporting, that we're having some more transparency. But ultimately, I think if we don't care that much as citizens to actually look into this stuff and really hold it up when everyone's doing it, it's like, what, what's the real difference you're making but, here? But the problem is, I feel like we're being lied to. The case of Joe Biden and pharmaceutical companies. He was receiving a lot of money from pharmaceutical companies while saying, I'm going to be lowering drug prices from pharmaceutical companies. Those two don't make sense together. But he continually said it, and millions upon millions of people believe that. So, I mean, it, it's just very hard. I feel I just don't want people lied to, and I feel like they are being lied to. But yeah, the main issue here, too, is that like with campaign finance, if like there are groups that are providing money to these major people and then there's also individual donors that are like you know really wealthy people that are providing funds to you know these politicians it i mean even if like we say that it it is reported and a lot of the stuff does get reported we don't know the exact numbers of everything that is being reported and there might be some shady stuff that takes place where they do they do engage in campaign fraud. Like we saw Robert Menendez having something like that happen recently in the last like four years whenever he was like and he's still there in office. But like when he before he ran for re-election, they found some stuff where he was engaging in campaign fraud. And that stuff happens all the time. And a lot of things is that a lot of these people get a lot of benefits from what they do. So like if I am an individual donor, let's say I'm Donald Trump. We don't really know all the details about this, but if Donald Trump was a New York citizen in the 1980s and he had like, you know, was providing a lot of funding to a lot of these politicians that were there, Democrat and Republican, he was able to evade taxes because they received the benefit from him giving them all this money because they wanted 
to keep stay in office and he was providing them additional funding and like that kind of stuff is where it's all fishy and it's hard to draw a line and that's where campaign finance doesn't really correlate with one another and there's way too much corruption to happen up next then we had the uh the, the, the tax returns of the president's going back 10 years basically it says the bill requires the president the vice president and certain candidates for those offices so i'm guessing anyone that runs in any of those offices to disclose 10 years of tax returns that's a really political thing that they threw in there just because of donald trump but the main issue here too is that like all of these people that usually run mainly in the house or senate are all really wealthy people and the people that are running in the senate or president and stuff they're usually like millionaires so like they have like accountants there that are going to be able to write off anything that is somewhat sketchy whenever they're providing their tax returns and they know how to audit things and they know how to make stuff happen it's not like regular people that were like oh yeah i just have i have so much money now i'm reporting my taxes it's nothing like that these people have a lot more interest in mind they have a lot more important people that are there looking at this stuff and they so we're essentially of- saying if you can't you couldn't have committed fraud in the past 10 years and gotten away with it is what we're trying to say with this right? yeah most of these people that are politicians would never be elected if you looked at 10 years of tax returns they're not uh, like the yeah. most clean people in the world hey it's politicians a, it's a are corrupt. Just I, I don't want the tax system like <laughs> to be judging who we're allowed to vote in as president you know but yeah do you have any thoughts Nick? Oh, man. So I'm thinking back to what we just talked about in terms of lobbying. And I don't know, man, like you said, it depends a lot on it's it sort of seems to me like we're setting some arbitrary rules, like, for example, the whole lobbying thing and who gets to be in office. It's like, I guarantee if you went to some like super granola, crunchy, liberal, you know, woman who's living in Denver, Colorado and said like, oh, yeah, I'm, I work in an NGO that lobbies Congress in favor of women's and indigenous rights. She'd be like, that's amazing. That's awesome. Great job. Um, but then if you said, oh, yeah, I, I work for some, you know, gun lobbying group, she'd be like, that's terrible. That's the worst thing in the world. How, how can you be allowed to be in office and work and do whatever? So a lot of it, I think, just depends on where you are on the political you know, spectrum. Personally, this, this is going to sound a little bad, but I don't have that many issues with lobbying. I think it's natural. I think it should be out in the open. I think, oh man, in terms of setting a limit on it, I'm not sure what that limit would be. But I think as part of it, like as individuals, we all sort of want to lobby the government and we naturally form into these groups to combine our voices and have a better chance of making sure that our opinions are heard and represented through our representative who we elected. So as far as lobbying itself and looking through tax returns to see where are these people making their money, dude, I'm sure you could go back in time. I, I forget with Hillary Clinton, whether it was a peanut farm or something else, but there's all these sketchy, weird deals going on, you know, back in the nineties of getting like tips and then your family member goes off. I Dude, that's the big thing. I think a lot of the times it's not the people directly running. I think a lot of it is, I mean, members of their family who they get a tip off from the person who's running for office. They decide to go into a certain area of business and it's like, well, they're a private citizen. They're not running for anything. And it's like, well, if oh, dude, I just don't know. Frankly, yeah. this is pretty new to me. I don't have any like refined thoughts or whatever, no, but I, I feel like we automatically assume lobbying is bad. Oh, if you have this, you know, conflict, perceived conflict of interest, you should never be able to run. And I'm just not sure how true that really is you can't look at it as black and white because it's not it's not all good or all bad it's good and bad and we have to work with that like you said do we not want to have a voice in our government is that that's our alternative to not having lobbying i don't know who would prefer that so it's like you destroy this you destroy lobbying what takes its place nothing 
So yeah, absolutely. I think people generally go, if it's my interest, I want it lobbied for. And if it's not, I don't, but that's the whole point. You're not going to get all your interests. People have to lobby for their own interests. You're not everyone. And part of it, I feel like is, you know, now we have the rise of, you know, the mega corporation that's multinational and all the rest of it. And I feel like people innately sort of think, oh, them lobbying for something is bad because they're already sort of on top of the game. They're the big player, you know, them solidifying their position seen as a bad thing. But those same lobbying laws that you're going to argue against also apply to nonprofits. They apply to unions. They apply to teachers groups. They apply to all these other organizations where I'm just not sure. You know, I think it's a broader conversation around who has the most influence and power in society as opposed to just looking at lobbying in a vacuum to say, this is the problem. It might be something, you know, maybe a little bit broader. I think the last thing that we should talk about before we, and this is voter access. That's all right with you guys. So, I mean, when the bill is supposed to expand voter registration, so automatic and same day registration and voting access, vote by mail and early, early voting. I also have heard some stuff, which I'm not absolutely sure if that's part of the bill because I haven't read the entire bill. I'm just reading some of the major points of it. But it's I see you're to acting like, like a real member of Congress for <laughs> just reading know, the spark notes and then you vote for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's like uh, apparently it's supposed to like prevent African American church groups from getting into a bus and going to voting places together and voluntary driving services to get older elderly people to the polls, which I don't really know if that's in there, but I've heard that. But there's a lot of other sketchy things with this. But overall, with voting registration, like I'm a fan of the voter IDs laws. I don't know if that's in there, but that's a whole topic for another day if that's not in there. But my main thing is the only way you can really expand voter registration is if you change the voting day to be on election day to be on yeah. Sunday. You don't need to have it on a, on a Tuesday. And if it is on a Tuesday, you need to make it a federal holiday. Because if that's not one or the other, you're never going to get half the people that are like below the poverty line people or people that are working class people that are going to go vote. Because if they don't have access to certain things, and now we have early voting and we have like mail-in ballots and things like that, which didn't really exist 10 years ago. Now we have all those commodities in place. So I'm sure voting has increased overall because of a lot of those different aspects being added. But it is very important to make sure the election day could be on a day where people aren't working. So you can physically get as many people as you can to go vote. And until you do that, you're never really going to expand voter access. And all these politicians like to talk about this. Oh, Donald Trump or Barack Obama and now Joe Biden. Biden has passed so many executive orders. Obama passed a bunch of executive orders. Trump passed a bunch of executive orders. If they really cared about people going to vote, which they like to claim to do because they want to get everybody out there and they, they don't feel like only 40% doesn't do the job. Well, like, if you really cared about it, you pass executive orders on things like going into the Paris Climate Accords again, which were in the past voted on, then this is more important. I'm not saying Iran nuclear deal or Paris Climate Accords and things like that aren't important, but this is more important to the democracy of the country. And if you really, really, really care about actually getting people to go vote, then you need to make it a, you need to make it a um, what do you call it, executive order to make it an election day, a federal holiday because it's never going to pass both parties because both parties have interest whenever their party's in power. So Pratik, you, you think that's the main thing, just making it a holiday and then all of a sudden magically everything will go smoothly? No, but not magically, but that's, that's, an, uh, that's a tangible thing that will improve. And I can't see the detriment of doing that. 
What is the negative consequence of saying, all right, guys, a lot of you guys work all day and you actually have no time to go vote. Let's make it a federal holiday so everyone has at least has the opportunity. It, it just uh, gets rid of another barrier in the way of voting. Isn't that the whole point of these voter, like getting rid of voter ID laws? It's, it's a step. And you can, if you really care about, oh, like, you know, what would we have to do if we make Tuesday a federal holiday? We could trade it with Columbus Day. I don't know why Columbus Day is a federal holiday. What That's do true. you do on Columbus Day? I remember when I was in D.C. and I worked in the government and I was like, all right, I'm going to go to the zoo on Columbus Day. <laughs> There's nothing you can do on Columbus Day. It's such a useless day. So like, all right, you, you trade him. He's not, he wasn't even the explorer of the United States. I mean, like for real. Like if you're worried about all this stuff, then that's the case. And you're never going to fix this voting system. You might not make it so that everybody's going to vote. Although you can make it potentially a rule to make everybody, forcing everyone to go vote. But this is a step. And unless you take the step, all this BS about increasing voter registration, expanding voting rights is all a bunch of baloney. You're never what if you force people to register but not vote? So like well, everyone I think, has to be able to vote. I think everyone they're just making so that you're automatically enrolled. I don't. I think automatic registration. I don't think it's such a bad thing. I think it's in the right direction. And actually, Pratik, I agree with you. I was being a little. I don't know. <laughs> A little bit of a, a jerk when I said this magical step, you know, but I, I really think that is an important part of it. But I think it needs to come with additional steps. One of those being if you want to expand access, I, I think there are two things that you could do here. One, I mean, we've all seen these clips of huge voter lines on Election Day, people waiting, you know, all the way like in the back of this four hour line and the rest of it. And I feel like if you open up more polling, if you have more funding for additional polling places, that would cut down on the amount of crazy lines. Like in my district, when I went to vote uh, for this election a couple of months ago, I was in and out maybe 10 minutes tops. A couple, you know, a couple of counties over, very different story. People had to wait in line much longer. Um, so I think part of it is just you have to budget appropriately. I, I'm not sure if this is on the, the local level. It, it may very well be the local level. Um, and the state level for how you actually allocate funds to open up enough voting infrastructure to get everyone in in a reasonable amount of time. I feel like that's part of it. Even if you open it up on a Sunday and make it a federal holiday and have so that everyone can line up, if you still only have the same fixed number of polling places with these huge lines, sure, you're going to get more people showing up, but they're still going to just be waiting and sitting around all day doing nothing, like you said, Fatigue, like on Columbus Day, where you had to go, God forbid, you go to the zoo and uh, learn about some of the creatures we inhabit the earth with. But um, sorry, I, I think that's part of it. And I think what this bill does properly is the whole mail and vote thing. And sure, we can talk about, you know, security concerns and who's actually mailing in their ballots and the rest of it. But I think the premise of if that's one of the issues is just it's it's hard to go out like 30 minutes to go stand in line somewhere. Uh, to vote when you're working. I think if you make it so that everyone is eligible to vote in by mail, I think that overcomes one of those barriers that I just talked about, which is in waiting in those very long lines. And if you have competing interests for your time, which everyone freaking does, it just makes it easier to vote. And so vetting aside, security aside, I think that is a step in the right direction to expanding voter access in a meaningful way, which is in this bill. 
I think we're actually waiting for technology to catch up to us at this point. I think something like blockchain, for instance, could be invaluable into making the voting process digital where you don't actually have to show up to a voting booth. Maybe that takes 10, 20, 30 years. I don't know, but I think we're going to get to that point. But it is incremental. And that's why I agree with Pratik when he says, let's just make it so at least people at least people have the day. Even if they had no intention of doing it, at least they had that day. And if that makes uh, 100,000 people vote every year extra that's that's worth it you know because what are we losing from doing that so that's a tangible solution if you believe in incrementalism like we've talked about in the show before um you know i think that's a good step forward so let's move on to our final topic i think that's majority of the bill there's some things in there like requiring code of conduct for supreme court justices i really don't know what that means yeah what does that so, what like, does that mean at all like i i, I think we're aren't we putting them there to make the decisions for themselves like what code of conduct are we trying to regulate them to <laughs> so there's no point of talking about it if there's more information they on do that, run their own cafeteria i just got i think it's important i think it's important Wait, let's not gloss over really quickly they run okay. their own cafeteria what do you mean and part of it when you were a new justice is you gotta you gotta do the coffee if there's oh you no know, some <laughs> no seriously i mean they're in charge of their own thing and there should be a thing of ethics and accountability you know if you're slacking and not picking up your end of the line when it comes to running your you know supreme court cafeteria i think there should be some severe punishments for that because like it's that. just not right it's unethical I like that. It's a yeah. microcosm of what they're doing, right? It's the smaller game into the bigger game. Um, All right, let's move on to the final topic. Um, we're going to talk about Biden's immigration reform bill. What's changing in 2021 for green cards and citizenship? So President Joe Biden has reversed former President Donald Trump's ban on legal immigration and reopened the U.S. to people seeking green cards. In a proclamation made February 24th, Biden said that suspending the entry of immigrants is detrimental to U.S. interests, harming U.S. citizens and industries. The latest order in part of Biden's hefty immigration reform package, formerly named the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, would provide include which would include providing an eight-year path to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented immigrants if it becomes law, as well as preserving and fortifying the DACA program. The sweeping proposal, which would be introduced in Congress, aims to reverse and revise policies from the previous administration. Biden signed three more executive orders on immigration. The orders individually seek to reunite immigrant families separated at the border, investigate humanitarian issues at the U.S. southern border, and review the previous administration's immigration policies for groups like undocumented essential workers, dreamers, and temporary protected status recipients. So yeah, there's a lot so, of stuff. Yeah, so it, it basically sounds like he wants to go back to what Obama said, where over the next 10, 5, 10 years, all the illegal immigrants in this country that haven't committed any crimes, can pass a background check, are able to pay their taxes, will be allowed to either get a green card or become citizens, right? I think that's what yeah. they're saying. Really, the only thing I have to do with immigration is I, I believe immigration is a very good thing. I think it's productive GDP-wise, culturally, I think it can be very productive, but we have these welfare programs like social security that make things like immigration reform nearly impossible because we're just inflating an already a, a system that's already about to explode. Um, so th those, I, it's very oh, hard for me to reconcile both these things. I wanted to add this to this. So millions of unauthorized immigrants already pay taxes by using the individual taxpayer identification numbers and workers without legal status generate millions of dollars for social security and Medicare 
yet aren't eligible for any benefits that accompany a social security number. And so that, we've that's fine, but let's this. be real. How many, you think the majority of illegal immigrants are actually trying to figure out a way to pay taxes and possibly get caught? I just don't no. see, like maybe and, some of them, but the vast majority, I just can't believe that's the case. And also it. the other issue here is that with like, you know, with the new proposals and the new packages that have been in place, there's been a lot of things where they want to provide like, you know, these $1,400 checks, for example, to all these illegal immigrants, along with, you know, certain things with Medicare provisions and certain things with social security, even if it's not fully paid for by them, because it's only looking at people that are actually paying taxes, which isn't the entire 10.5 million immigrants in the United States that are unauthorized. But like, it's all, it's one of those things that we don't really have enough information on. It's one of those things that you're never going to be to have enough information on until those people become citizens of the United States, unless you're in a state where they do allow people that are illegal immigrants to live there and, you know, not be deported and things like that. Sanctuary cities, that's what you call it. So like, it's very, it's one of those things that's like, it all varies based on where you live. And many things with illegal immigration is that we don't know all the people that are here illegally. And many of the people have overstayed their visas or have crossed the border. And you're never going to know until they come out and say that they're an illegal immigrant, which who's going to do that? But but this and it's, but it's a really a short term fix for a long term problem because what do we do yeah. this every ten years we go all right guys new sweep of you guys are good now because you were able to find your way in it, it sets a bad precedent moving forward we need I, we need to not use band aids we need to fundamentally find a way in the system to change it so that we don't keep running into this issue over and, and over again I personally I mean even though my party doesn't really believe this I don't really care um like my issue is that if you have a lot of illegal immigrants that have come here that have overstayed their visas you know who those people are so you can verify them you can check who they are you can you know have certain things in place that you can monitor what those people are doing and those people can have an easier access to citizenship because you know who those people are now i'm saying that's probably a majority of the illegal immigrants now you do have people that do cross the border and do, uh, you know, do enter the country without any papers and without like, you know, any verification on who those people are, if they are coming from across the border, or they're coming from South America, which may not be like the vast majority of illegal immigrants. But those are the people that are the more of the issue barrier, because you don't have any information on them. So if they were to come in our country, and let's say they accidentally, you know, get into an accident and kill somebody, you're not going to be able to have enough information to check that person out because they don't have a social security number and there's no way to, you know, verify who those people are. Now, if you've overstayed a visa, you had to come here and you had to fill out papers to actually get a visa and a green card to come to the United States. So there are easier ways that you can track those people down. And if they are following certain protocols and you don't really have to leave, you don't really have to deport them. But the other hand is that that's the issue is becomes a safety and security measure problem there. So, you so, don't have to make sure everybody's, you know. So, so Nick, I'm, I'm interested in hearing your response to this because we obviously, not obviously, I, I think we probably have a slightly different opinion from you. So let's hear your thoughts. Oh, gosh, dude. So immigration is a touchy subject um, in general, but I think, I think forming, I think there should be a pathway to citizenship. 
Um, again, like you were saying, what are you going to do? Have, you know, generations of people just living sort of their lives. And I, I know Pratik, you give the little the thing and, you know, if you're born in this country, you're an American citizen. Ah, I know. All right. I guess I already messed up in whatever I was going to say, but no, seriously, I think there should be some sort of path to citizenship. I don't think there's going to be some sort of panacea or cure-all to fix this forever in perpetuity. I think, honestly, I think it's a good thing, frankly, that people want to come to this country and see it as a better alternative to where they are currently. I would definitely be, you know, pretty, pretty disheartened, pretty disappointed if people were leaving the United States at a rate faster than they were coming in. I think it's sort of to the benefit of our country that so many people want to join. And of course, you know, having some sort of sovereignty and control over our borders is certainly important. But I mean, one thing you guys mentioned, which I'm not sure is true, you said most illegal immigrants do not pay any form of taxes, the rest of it. I I don't know, something tells me that they do. I'm thinking of DACA recipients, for example, who... Like 2008, 2010, when Obama I only said put that, that in. I don't think Pratik said that. So, um, I'm pretty sure yeah. DACA recipients like actually paid like a yearly, I forget if it's yearly to um, renew their status or if they have to do it every couple of years, but they actually do end up paying money to the federal government, one, to renew their status, and two, just in terms of their local state and even federal taxes, I think many of them pay them. It all, it all varies on where you live. Okay. That's what I was saying. So sanctuary cities and states that have, you know, that allow illegal immigrants to domicile there, without being, um, you know, in danger of being deported. States like New yeah. York and California, they allow mm-hmm. that. And that's where a lot of the illegal immigrants are in general anyway, or big states like that, where they yeah. do just receive domiciliary stats. I would be and interested. That, oh, go ahead, Tyler. I, I was just, I was just going to say that definitely could be. I'm just not, I'm not sure that if I was a legal immigrant, I would want to put my name, put myself out there at all. And I think even trying to pay taxes is, a, is kind of, it's it's a threat yeah. to your livelihood in the country. So I think it's such a threat, a large percentage wouldn't be willing to. And I think they do reap the benefits of schools and all the other infrastructure we've built. But by the way, with everything I've said, I'm, I really, really believe that you should use all of the human capital you can, the best human capital you can. We should, we should, like you said, the fact that people want to come to America is such a beautiful thing. We should want that to happen. All I'm trying to say is we need to find a sustainable way to manage it. I, I just don't like putting band-aids on stuff like this because it just seems to get uh, washed to the side. And decade after decade, we run into these same, same issues. And we're going to run into the issues regardless. But, man, it's just hard for me to go, all right, guys, we're just going to say you guys are good to come. I, I just think that'll incentivize too many other people to just want to jump the border. And it's not necessarily the human capital we want to come here. I, I want the best of the best. You know, I want America to be the best of the best. I'm not sure we're only getting the best of the best. And I want to add this just to it because it's about the Citizenship Act of 2021. So the plan would offer, um, you know, protections to a wide range of immigrants. So uh, DACA dreamers. So people that were kids that were entered the country where they weren't of legal age and they entered the country illegally and have been living in this country for a long period of time. Temporary protected status holders immigrant farm workers, orphans, widows, and children, Filipino veterans who fought alongside the United States in World War II, immigrants with approved family sponsorship positions to join their family in the U.S. on a temporary basis, asylum seekers, the bill seeks to eliminate the one-year deadline for filling asylum claims, 
other venerable vulnerable populations like U visa, T visa, and VAWA visa applicants and foreign nationals assisting U.S. troops. I just wanted to put that in there if people wanted to find more information about this and know more about what what's included in the plan. Definitely. And I think as you can tell from listening to this, all of us certainly have further reading to do on this. But mm-hmm. one thing I would definitely recommend doing, which I'm going to do after the pod, mm-hmm. uh, is either finding a GAO, Government Accountability Office, or another sort of Congressional Budget Office report that actually looks at net cost of illegal immigrants and how that actually plays into this big welfare state that we've built up mm-hmm. um, to see like Tyler was saying, how sustainable it really is. That would That's be very idea. interesting. To for, look uh, for, for next week, we should talk about that next week on the podcast. Something to look forward to for all our uh, listeners. Absolutely. And I also think that it's important to note, I mean, we always like like to look at this illegal immigration thing. It's like, oh, both parties, they have their own agendas. Republicans are racist. Democrats, like, you know, want to do all this stuff to, like, try to get all the illegal immigrants to come in our country. Democrats want to say Kumbaya. Yeah, it's, it's, the, all, yeah. it's, it's not really like that. The goal in immigration reform is that you want to try to make it easier for all the people that want to come in this country legally to be able to come in this country. No one that's an illegal immigrant is like, first thing, oh, I want to illegally immigrant here. They want to try to come in this country legally and they want to follow all this right procedures because they don't want to be deported either. And they don't want to have all the same problems. The reasons why people illegally immigrate are not just because they want to just come to the United States to live a better life. That's part of it. But they also want to escape from where they are at the moment. And many of the policies that are there are so bureaucratic that make it so hard for people that want Mm. to come in this country to be able to come in this country in a fast, effective period of time. And many people have don't have any other choice other than to illegally immigrate to come to the United States. And we're the only country in the world that provides enough safe haven to all these people that are all around the world to be able to come to the United States to live a better life. Most of these other countries around the world all have homogeneous populations and are really restrictive when it comes to immigration from countries like Sweden, Switzerland, Saudi Arabia, any of those countries that are in the massive scale of the world. And I feel like with the United States, because we are the United States, when we do have a lot of demand for immigrants to come in our country, we do need to make it easier to make it so that people come in this country. And that's usually the goal of both parties. The Republicans are more about the merit system. Democrats are more about helping out people that are already here to make, you know, attain citizenship status. But overall, the goal of either party and everyone that is running in the government is not just to illegally deport, you know, deport all these illegal immigrants. They want to make it so that it's easier for these people to come in this country and live the American dream. Yeah. And this isn't an issue all these countries face. Like face, we are the grand experiment in a way of diversity and whether we can bring all these cultures collectively and make them interact in a way that's beneficial for everyone. And we've done a great job so far. And we would hate for that not to be something we strive for in the future, but there is a fine line. And I think that's what we've been talking about here. But with all that said, I think we covered a lot this week. It's honestly a highlight of my week to talk to you guys on this podcast. I really enjoy it. So thank you. Thank you for being here as always. Uh, To all our listeners, we always appreciate you guys. Please stay tuned for next week. Uh, like Nick said, we're, probably, we're going to be looking into this immigration thing a little bit more, flesh that out a bit, as well as whatever happens within the week in the political sphere. Uh, so thank you for tuning in. Any final thoughts, guys? Nothing. Just hope everybody stays safe and you know pay attention to what's going on in the news. So don't just read headlines and just assume what you think is right based on what the one opinion is that you read. 
look at all the different facts and different details and determine for yourself what you think is the right answer. And it's not going to be the same for everybody. So you just had to create your own And opinion. that goes with us. Don't take everything we say as gospel. You know, question, question, question. Unless it's Tyler, then take it as gospel. Well, I'm God, but everyone the... else. I <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Great being with you guys as always. Thanks again for inviting me back on the show. Uh, stay safe, everyone. Have a great week. Stay safe. Later.